0: How easy is it for us to do something over and over and over again and yet miss the meaning? Just think of Christmas, something we celebrated not too long ago. Billions of people around the world celebrated Christmas. And I don't know how many of those billions, but let's say the exact figure of many, uh, many of those people set up Christmas trees. And maybe you're one of them. We set up a Christmas tree. Uh, you guys set up Christmas trees, yes? Okay. Set up a Christmas tree, but the question I have for you is why? Why do you set up a Christmas tree? Why do you set up a Christmas tree? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, we always have. That's what we did growing up. We've set up a Christmas tree now, and so I set out to do some Googling this week to try to figure out why do we set up Christmas trees, and honestly. It seems like there's a few answers to that question. Some seem more convincing than others. Maybe you know the answer. Maybe you don't. But I think it illustrates well that we so often do something over and over, uh, but we don't necessarily know why. And this can be true about anything we do as a church. Why do we do what we do when we worship? Well, that in part has been a question we've been seeking to answer Uh, to ask and to answer as we've worked through this series, which is unusual for us to go through this topical series of examining the local church. But the hope is that we would be able to start to answer uh, the why of what we do what we do. So as we ask the question why, this is what we've been examining along the way. Why do we gather together a group of Christians who regularly assemble in the name of Christ? Why do when we gather why is there a responsibility that we have to affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ why is preaching central to what we do how does preaching build up the church why do we baptize people why is there this marking out and identification ritual that we do together as a church when someone comes to Christ and this morning we ask our final question of the series why Share in the Lord's Supper. What happens in the Lord's Supper? Because it's something we do. We do it here every week. Churches don't have to do it every week. Different churches practice it in different ways. But we share it every week. And I think we could understand how possible it is for us to do something week in and week out. Do something over and over and yet miss the meaning. And I think that's especially true when we share in the Lord's Supper because there are many layers and levels of meaning and significance when we share in this time together. And I would imagine that even in a small church of I don't know how many, there is probably a pretty broad spectrum here this morning of our understanding of the Lord's Supper. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Maybe you have no concept of even what I'm talking about when I'm saying the Lord's Supper. Well, that's okay. If you have questions, uh, if we move too fast over things, come talk to me after the service. I would love to answer any questions that you have. As I said, there's a few books I'd love to give away if that would be a help to you. I was talking with a non-Christian neighbor this week who uh, I was able to, he asked, oh, how's the church going? And so I was explaining that I was preaching on the Lord's Supper this week. He had no idea what the Lord's Supper was. And so uh, it really was an eye-opening thing for me about how many things... uh, We can presume how many assumptions we have about something we do so regularly. And so if you have questions, please come talk to me. I would love uh, for you to go away today with your questions answered. And not just your questions about the Lord's Supper, uh, but big questions. Questions about life uh, and hope and peace. Maybe you're here and you've been a Christian for a long time. You might have partaken in the bread and the cup hundreds, maybe even thousands of times, depending on the frequency of the church that you were at and how regularly they practiced it. But I think you know, too, that just like you could think of many traditions in our own lives and things that we do, sometimes familiarity kind of breeds ignorance because we get so familiar with something we forget about the meaning. And so I hope, uh, Christian, that you come away encouraged this morning as we talk about the Lord's Supper and boys and girls, you too, this is a great Sunday for you to be paying attention because the Lord's Supper is something we do every week, and it's not just a you know, time when some of the grown-ups get a snack uh, in the service. It's, there's, there's more to it. And so, kids, I would love for you to listen closely and carefully and look forward to the day that you can share in the Lord's Supper with us. And so, friends, would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles available for you to borrow over on the table over there. If, if you don't have a Bible, period, you can certainly b- borrow that Bible for the morning, but we would love for you to just keep that Bible as a gift uh, from us to you. And if you need help finding 1 Corinthians, there's a table of contents, uh, which you certainly can utilize, or tap someone on the shoulder next to you, I am sure they would be glad to help you find 1 Corinthians. Now, if you have been worshiping with us for any length of time, you know that The book of 1 Corinthians uh, is this book where Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and uh, there's a lot of rebuke that's happening in this letter. There's a lot of criticism about uh, what this church is doing and failing to do. And this passage specifically, you're going to be very familiar with because we read it not necessarily every Sunday, but quite often. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and this section specifically where Paul writes about the Lord's Supper. Now, even if it's very familiar to you, I would encourage you this morning, Christian, to listen closely and maybe try as, as abstract of a thought as this is to maybe listen differently. Uh, So these aren't just words that roll over us, but this is God's word. This is instruction on an important part of our worship together. But as I said, Paul is actually writing in the form of a rebuke, not really an encouragement in this section as he writes about the Lord's Supper, because the Corinthian church had so distorted the Lord's Supper. Uh, You'll see, Paul actually says that what they're doing is not sharing in the Lord's Supper because of the way that they have distorted all that the Lord's Supper is supposed to mean. And then in the middle of that is where we find the section that we read very frequently that gives specific instruction on the Lord's Supper. And so once you've found 1 Corinthians chapter 11, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And if you believe it is God's Word, when we are done uh, reading, I'm going to say this is the Word of the Lord. And if you agree, I would encourage you to say thanks be to God. Let's hear the Word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. The big idea from 1 Corinthians 11 is a little bit cryptic, but I want you to stay with me. I think it'll become clearer as we work through the passage. The big idea is that the Lord's Supper teaches us where to look. The Lord's Supper teaches us where to look. We're going to look at five different places Uh, or we should be looking at five different places as we share in the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper teaches us where to look. First, where should we look? We should look back in remembrance. Look back in remembrance. If most Christians were pulled uh, to explain what the Lord's Supper is and why we do it, I would imagine this would be uh, the best understood facet of the Lord's Supper, to look back in remembrance. And that's, uh, there's no fault in that. I think that makes a lot of sense, likely because Jesus says repeatedly in this uh, instruction that Paul delivers to the Corinthians, do this in remembrance of me. And so there is an obvious application here to look back in remembrance. Now, just because this is a straightforward and probably the best known Portion of this passage doesn't make it uh, any less profound. Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his friends on the night when he was betrayed. Uh, They were sharing a meal that served as a memorial. The Passover meal uh, operated exactly that, as an opportunity to look back in remembrance. They looked back on a day when God saved his people. He rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. They look back and they remember this time when they themselves were shielded from death because of the death of another, their Passover lamb. And so when Jesus shared this meal with his friends, I don't think it's incidental, I don't think it's coincidental that Jesus was sharing the Passover as he instituted the Lord's Supper. Because he took this meal of remembrance, this meal of looking back in remembrance, and applied it to himself. We see that in verses 24 and 25 of 1 Corinthians 11. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, that is the bread, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So he's taking this Uh, looking back memorial remembrance and he's applying it to himself. He's not saying do this in remembrance of uh, what God has done. He's saying do this in remembrance of me. In Jesus's sacrificial death, which was about to happen as he instituted the Lord's Supper, the new covenant, these new promises, this new understanding of God's work of redemption was being inaugurated. This old promise would be fulfilled as Jesus would accomplish salvation for his people. And just as the Passover lamb shielded God's people from death, Jesus puts himself in the place of a new and better Passover lamb. Through his death, he paid for every sin that enslaves us. Through trusting in him and his sacrifice, you and I can be spared the penalty that should fall on us because of the sin that we have committed against God. And so when we eat the bread, we remember that Christ's body was, as we heard uh, prophesied in Isaiah 53, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Jesus was whipped, stripped, bruised, beaten, and broken. We remember the sinless Son of God who willingly stood in our place. And we drink from the cup, remembering that Jesus' blood was shed for us, poured out for us, that we might live. The bread and the juice or the wine don't magically become Jesus' actual body and blood. Uh, These elements are tokens, tokens that represent that of the whole, that is Christ. Tokens that help us remember what Jesus did. Salvation is not found in the elements themselves. Salvation is found in the one that these elements point to, and that is Christ and so, Christian, I ask you a question this morning. Have you limited this ordinance to simply being a metaphor? This ordinance, as we've uh, talked about, is the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion, it's something ordained by Jesus, something given uh, to us by Him. Have you limited this ordinance of the Lord's Supper to simply being a metaphor? Because just because they're a symbol doesn't mean that they are simply some ethereal metaphor. These elements actually represent something. Actually better, they represent someone. And they represent real events. Jesus truly died so that you might live. Don't let that skate over uh, your mind. When you share in these elements, look back and remember. And you understand the, the difference, right, between mental recollection and, and actually being taken back and remembering something, right? Often in our, our life, you think of songs or smells or feelings or tastes that connect a direct thread in our memory. You know that feeling, right? You hear a song, and you know, oh, that's where I was that summer, Right? Or you, you eat something and you're like, oh, that reminds me of my childhood. You look back and remember and you have a tangible, physical thing to connect that thread in your mind. And so I think it's fascinating that Jesus gives us a tangible, sensory, experiential experience to help us look back and remember. Not simply to, to think back and casually remember, but to really experientially remember And so as you take these elements each week, look back and remember Jesus. Look back and remember him sitting with his friends, sharing a meal, knowing that just a few hours later, some of those friends would betray him, that others would deny him, and that the rest would abandon him. Think about how he gave them these representations of him, the bread and the wine. And shortly thereafter, would give his actual own life for them. Think about how parallel that is to our own lives. That each and every time we sin, we abandon Christ. And yet he gives us not only the representations that we turn over in our hands every Sunday as we share in the Lord's Supper and then as we eat, but he actually gives us himself. He is the prize. Look back and remember Jesus. As you eat the bread and you Uh, Think about Jesus. Look back and remember how he agonized to the point of death in the Garden of Gethsemane. As you drink from the cup, look back and remember the full cup of God's wrath that Jesus willingly took. And that we can drink from this small cup that represents his suffering and his victory. Each time you eat the bread and drink the cup, look back and remember Just because this is the facet of the Lord's Supper that I think we understand best uh, makes it no less profound. So this time together each week is not for us to just uh, have this unthinking or careless recollection or a, a casual nod to God. The Lord's Supper is something given to us by Jesus to remember Jesus. Remember him when you eat and drink. Remember the very real sacrifice that made it so that you could know peace with God. Look back and remember God saving you, the weight of your sin that fell off your shoulders and onto another. Look back and remember the joy of your baptism, where you symbolically died with Christ and rose with Him to new life. Look back in remembrance more than anything, look back and remember Christ as truly glorious as looking back in remembrance is, the Lord's Supper is actually so much more. It's hard to believe, but it's true. And so look back in remembrance and look ahead in anticipation. Look ahead in anticipation. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. The Lord's Supper is both a a remembrance and a proclamation, but we need to understand, too, that it's a proclamation that doesn't last forever. It has an expiry date. And we get it right here in verse 26, until Jesus comes again. This is meant to be an in-between type of meal. In between the cross and in between the time when Christ will return to take us home. We eat and drink with anticipation, as we, as we sung earlier to the day that we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. We sung about our hope springing eternal. This is exactly what we're talking about. That it's not simply looking back in remembrance as if that wasn't enough. It's looking ahead with anticipation. One author writes how in the supper, hope is both declared and cultivated. Cultivated. Hope is both declared and cultivated. We declare our hope in the present, but as we share in the Lord's Supper, it ought to also lift up our chin to long for the day when everything sad and broken will come to an end. As a kid, we had a tradition. I don't know why, there's lots of Christmas connections here this morning. Uh, We had this tradition of on Christmas Eve, we would open up one gift. And it was always the same gift, and we would you know, pretend like we didn't know what it was going to be, but it was always the same thing. It was a new pair of Christmas pajamas. We would get a new pair of Christmas pajamas on Christmas Eve. Now, pajamas paled in comparison to the gifts that we were going to receive on Christmas morning. But what they served for us was a foretaste of what was coming. And then, kids, you know exactly this experience, right? You're laying in bed uh, on Christmas Eve night, and you're just eager. You're anticipating what is about to come. Well, the Lord's Supper kind of functions like that for us. It's far sweeter than Christmas pajamas. Maybe you're a big fan of Christmas pajamas. But it serves for us as a foretaste of a fuller, more precious, more beautiful meal that we will share in eternity. When we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we look to Christ's finished work on the cross. And we anticipate the day when we will, again, feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we look back to the past. We look to the cross, what Christ finished and accomplished for us ultimately. We rest in the present, in what God has done for us, in the hope and peace that we know. And we wait with excitement and anticipation for a glorious future when all things will be made new. The Lord's Supper is meant to be a regular, public proclamation of what Jesus has done until he comes again. And so you may be here and not be a Christian. What is it that you look ahead to with anticipation? We all look ahead with anticipation to something. Maybe it's a new house. Maybe it's a promotion. Maybe it's your retirement. Maybe it's the next vacation. Well, the Christian message is that there is an unshakable hope that extends beyond circumstances, that actually extends beyond this life. And so I wonder what you make of that this morning. This room is full of people who know what it is like to look back now and find real peace and to look forward and find real hope. And so I would encourage you to talk to somebody after the service if you have questions about How to look forward with anticipation in a way that is far bigger than even this life. And, Christian, these realities should be evident in our participation. We should eat and drink with a degree of solemn reflection. It is a serious and important part of our worship, but it is worship when we share in these tokens. We should eat and drink with joy and anticipation. Uh, I suggest that that should be visible on our faces as we eat and we drink. Think about how profound and mind-boggling these first two looks are. That we look back in remembrance of the greatest event in all of history that actually makes it so that we can have peace with God. That all of our dreams, as cheesy as it sounds, come true. We look back in remembrance of this great event and then we look ahead to eternity in anticipation of eternal life. Can we possibly do that stone-faced? Look back in remembrance, look ahead with anticipation and third, look within in self-examination. The Corinthians had so distorted what the Lord's Supper is that Paul was compelled here in his letter to call them out. And I'm glad that he had to because we learn so much about the Lord's Supper in this portion of the letter. But he calls them out and he doesn't pull punches. Their, Their failure to actually live out all that the Lord's Supper was supposed to mean makes Paul say that they weren't actually sharing in the Lord's Supper. What they were doing was something else. In verse 20 it says, when you come together it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So there's no soft peddling here. We know how Paul feels about the way the Corinthians were uh, practicing this important time together as a church but they certainly were doing it in an unworthy manner. And so we need to be equally careful that we don't allow these kinds of factions and divisions to creep into our church. Now, I don't think many of you are tempted to sneak in here early on a Sunday and snag, uh, you know, the little cups of grape juice we have and the little wafers. They leave much to be desired. I made a joke one time in a Sunday service where I talked about how they taste so bad uh, To remind us of the bitterness of sin. No one laughed. I think they thought I was trying to make a theological point. But we're not likely trying to sneak in and take these communion elements. But friends, what Paul's concerned about here is the heart. uh, As much, if not more, than the action. And it would be very easy for us, too, to see the unity and the fellowship that's supposed to be demonstrated in the Lord's Supper undermined. And this is why Paul gives serious and sobering warnings in verses 27 through 29. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So friends, this isn't something we should play fast and loose with. The Corinthian church wasn't living out their fellowship in unity. They were actually doing the opposite. In the Lord's Supper, the supposed Lord's Supper that they were doing, it's meant to proclaim and remember what Jesus did. The most ultimate, selfless sacrifice. And yet the way that they're conducting themselves is in a heinous, selfish act creating division undermining their unity it's disgusting because they're presuming forgiveness and yet they're willingly and abusively putting themselves over others they act out this drama again of the most selfless act in all of history they enact the gospel as they share in the bread and the cup and all the while being all the while being selfish themselves And so we should be careful to approach the table making sure that we aren't coming in an unworthy manner. Are we coming to the table presuming, in fact, declaring that Christ has broken down the division between us and him and yet living with division between us and a brother or sister in Christ? It's hypocrisy. How dare we? To scorn and despise Christ's people is to scorn and despise Christ's death. To come to the table in this way is to effectively enact that you think Christ died for you and not for them. And therefore, eating and drinking in this unworthy manner is to eat and drink judgment on yourself. And so, brother or sister, I encourage you, if there's division between you and a brother or a sister, make peace and then come to the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. This echoes Jesus' own teaching in Matthew 5, 23, and 24. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Worship is important, but we want to make sure that we're worshiping in a worthy manner. A helpful reminder for us especially for those of us with tender consciences, none of us are worthy apart from Christ, but it is possible to come in an unworthy manner. Every time we share in the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity for self-examination. And so ask yourselves diagnostic questions when we come together as a church. Ask yourself, have I turned from my sin? Have I trusted in Jesus and his sacrificial death For me? Am I undermining that in any way because of secret sin that I refuse to repent of? Have I identified with Jesus and his people through baptism? Have I committed myself to and am I walking in fellowship with Jesus' family in the local church? We look back, we look ahead, we look within, and then naturally that leads us to looking around in fellowship. Look around in fellowship. Did you notice five times in this short passage, five times Paul says when you come together or when you come together as a church. There's no descriptions of sharing in the Lord's Supper outside from the assembled church. It is in no way an individual act. In a chapter earlier, there, again, spend time studying through Uh, these chapters through 1 Corinthians. But a chapter earlier, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. One of the gifts God desires to give us in the Lord's Supper is a means of renewing our unity of enacting our fellowship together as we considered previously in our baptism one is bound to many one is bound to many one swears their allegiance to jesus unites themselves with him and his people we talked about how that's putting on the team jersey of team jesus in our baptism that's what we do baptism functions as the front door of the church so to speak And so the Lord's Supper then is the family meal where we live out that same reality of coming through the door and entering into the church. It makes sense then that it's been historically practiced this way, that baptism would precede the Lord's Supper because baptism is the initiating oath sign as we talked about of the new covenant. It's the initiating oath sign and then the Lord's Supper is the ongoing oath sign. It's the way we continue to live out that same reality through this gift that Christ has given to the church and so we ought to ask ourselves the same questions uh, whether uh, there is anything that we are doing that is undermining this fellowship with one another and so to start that may be actually asking ourselves are we committed in fellowship to one another one author writes this certainly any believer can look back and remember look ahead and anticipate and perhaps look within in self-examination But how could someone with no connection to that local church, someone not even a member of any church, meaningfully, look around in fellowship? It is true that all believers are fellow members of the universal body of Christ, but that is not the point of the teaching in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. It would seem to me that the members of that local church who partake in the Lord's Supper would most fully experience the meaning of the Lord's Supper. End quote. And so what we're not talking about here is necessarily sharing in an unworthy manner, but something is lost if we are not committed in fellowship to one another, if we can't look around in fellowship. This is why when churches face the difficult work of church discipline, where they have to excommunicate a member who refuses to let go of their sin, they are to excommune with them. They're doing the opposite of what communion declares. Excommunication, and then we commune with one another. And so church discipline declares something really clear. And I want you to think of the Lord's Supper as being something that declares just as loud and just as clear the opposite. That we are in right fellowship together, that we share from the same table, that we are equally sinners in need of a Savior, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that we share together in communion. The Lord's Supper is the means by which God constitutes a people. When people come to Christ, they become members of his universal body, spiritually one with him. But to be a church, to to come together as Christ's people, we come together committed to one another, to be an assembly of Christians. Churches don't just spring into existence if you're walking in the grocery store and you bump into another Christian. You haven't just formed a church, and they don't immediately dissolve then when you you know walk down the aisle from them. And this is the same that we could think of in marriages. Marriages don't just spring into existence when people bump into each other. Marriage demands commitment. There are promises that are made to each other. A husband and wife make vows to one another. They formally commit to one another. They become one flesh. In marriage, two people are bound together. Now, relationships in the church are not the same as marriage. We know that. There's obvious differences. But I would encourage you to think a lot more along those lines than seeing the church as just this universal spiritual reality or, or simply this kind of name-only Christianity that we see so prevalent. A group of Christians becomes a church when they become marked out. They unite themselves with Christ and his people in baptism. One individual Christian bound to many. And then that gets lived out in the reality of a committed, accountable relationship. And so how is that relationship reaffirmed? Well, we, that's what we've been looking at through this whole series, through our regular assembling together through mutual accountability, through sitting under God's word, and through our ongoing participation in the Lord's Supper. There is, I would even argue, a very practical component to this uh, that is, is, I think, is full of wisdom and prudence. We need our brothers and sisters to watch out for us, to look for our blind spots, to help us come to the table in a worthy manner. We also need our brothers and sisters, again, for those with tender consciences, to, to reassure us of our identity in Christ, to reassure us that we can come to the table because of the merits of Christ. It's incredibly reassuring and even a more precious experience to be able to look around at, in fellowship with those that you've covenanted with. And it's why, too, historically, many churches would read their church covenant out loud altogether Uh, every time that they shared in the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper, is an opportunity for self-reflection and it's an opportunity to remind ourselves and one another of the commitment that we have made to one another. And so it sounds silly. I've said it before, but I don't see it happen often. So I'm gonna just throw it out there. I would encourage you as we share in the Lord's Supper, really look around at each other. Make eye contact with one another. I know it feels weird at times, but look at each other. Look around in fellowship. Look around and marvel. Not, oh, how could Jesus have saved him, or how could Jesus have saved her? But do look around and marvel and say, that person has been purchased with the blood of Christ. That is my brother. That is my sister. Look around at those that you've covenanted to love, to pray for, to encourage, and to protect. You know, scan the room. Maybe pray for someone as we're preparing to share in the Lord's Supper. God gave us this ordinance to tangibly live out together in communion with one another. The Lord's Supper could have been given to us as a private act of devotion, but it explicitly is not. It's a family meal that's been given to Christ's church. It's meant to be a means by which we reaffirm our love for Christ together and our love for one another. So look around in fellowship. And then finally, look up in expectation. Look up in expectation. Look up in thanksgiving and in gratitude. Expecting his blessing in our participation in this gift. We participate in the saving events of the gospel in our baptism. Our union with Christ is represented when we go public with our faith. And our ongoing participation in the Lord's Supper is exactly that. Ongoing participation in our union with Christ. We participate in these amazing realities. Each time we share in the Lord's Supper, we commune with Christ and his people, look up in expectation, expecting what God will do through our time together. These elements don't become Jesus, but Jesus has promised to be with us always. Think about that truth. As we eat and And we drink, look up in expectation as these tokens are a special time of fellowship with our Lord. They are communion with him. Gives us spiritual nourishment, sustaining grace for the days to come. As you eat and as you drink, enjoy the blessing of a deeper appreciation for the fellowship of the believers that God has placed you in. And as you eat and drink, enjoy the blessing of a clearer view of Christ's victory on the cross. As you eat and drink, look up in expectation, in joyful anticipation of the day when all things will be made new. Look back, look ahead, look within, look around. And look up in humble expectation, fully receptive to all that God desires to give us through the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this gift. The gift of the bread and the cup that point us to our Savior. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this gift that is multifaceted, something that we ought never to grow tired of, because it points us to our only hope. We thank you for Christ. Help us to dwell on these glorious truths today. Amen.